Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report, KHSU's weekly program covering environmental issues that matter most on the North Coast and in our bioregion. I'm your host this week, Jennifer Kalt, Director of Humboldt Baykeeper, and today my guest is Joe Tabersi, a marine ecologist with California Sea Grant Extension and adjunct at Humboldt State University, who's here to talk about research on eelgrass, ocean acidification, and aquaculture. Thanks so much for being on the Eco News Report today, Joe. Thanks for having me, Jen. I'm excited to talk about our new work. Great. So before we get into that, I just have a few Baykeeper-related news items. You may have heard the latest California Beach Report card came out, and that includes Lufenholz and Clam Beach on the state's top 10 most polluted beaches in terms of water quality, meaning fecal bacteria which is a concern because it can make you sick if you swim, surf, or otherwise play in the water. And this has been an ongoing problem for some years, as the oyster industry knows quite well, and surfers as well. And we've been studying it for a number of years, too. And we hope to have results from our study very soon that will give some indication of whether the sources are primarily human cattle, dog, bird, or none of the above. The good news is that Heal the Bay recently began predicting daily water quality at Lufenholz Beach by modeling past data and projecting it into the future. Heal the Bay is the organization that puts together that beach report card every year. So they'll be coming up later this summer, and we will have more on that in a future Econews report. Also, our mercury study of local fish and shellfish has been in the news in recent weeks, and also the Spanish version of our mercury guidelines is available on the Baykeeper website, along with the English version and the full report, if people are interested in that. It's not too long, because we know people don't want to read tons of material these days. And then lastly, Senator Mike McGuire has a bill called SB 1029, the Great Redwood Trail Bill, which would dissolve the North Coast Rail Authority and preserve the public corridor that goes from Samoa all the way through Arcata and Eureka to Willits by converting it to a trail. And this is super exciting. The bill has passed the state Senate, is likely to pass the Assembly, but without funding, it will sit in limbo, much like the NCRA has for the past 20 years since the last train ran. So people are calling for the governor to include the Great Redwood Trail Agency in the budget. For more info on that, you can go to the Baykeeper website or Humboldt Trails Council or Friends of the Eel River, who has been keeping the pressure on the NCRA for a good number of years here. Okay, so Joe, you are California Sea Grant's marine ecologist and also northernmost coastal specialist, and you're based in Eureka. So you do research that includes all kinds of bay and ocean-related science, and I know this is a really busy time for you because of the minus tides. This is the, the great tide cycle where you can get out in the low tide during the day. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on a, such a busy week for you. No problem. It's fun to share about what we're doing. So tell us a little bit about California Sea Grant Extension. It's not really apparent what it is by the name of it. Right. And so, yeah, this is a great time to share about that. So California Sea Grant is the wet, salty counterpart of land grant. And the idea behind both is to is to have a local scientist who's part of the communities who can help connect them with 
academic science that can help them improve their industry for land grant. A lot of that is farming. For sea grant extension, there's, you know, things like aquaculture, fishing, recreational users, but also, you know, part of sea grant's mission is applied research for things like the environment and the ecosystems. So that's one of our main goals is healthy coastal ecosystems as well as resilient coastal communities. So it's it's fun to work for this organization because I get to live here on the North Coast and we do have a lot of interesting natural resource issues and environmental issues and I kind of can see what what research needs there are and whether there's already research that's been done that I can help plug in, connect people with, or if that research hasn't been done, help build sort of collaborative teams to do that research. And so it's it's fun to have that freedom. I bet it is. It sounds really, it sounds like kind of a dream job, really. It really is. <laughs> so what you're here to talk about primarily is the ongoing eelgrass research and you know, there's a lot of eelgrass in Humboldt Bay. It's certainly the healthiest eelgrass ecosystem in California. And tell us a little bit about this research that you're doing right now and how how it's important for all the, you know, the ecosystem and the people who make a living on Humboldt Bay. So it's it's a really exciting project that we started last year, and it's funded by the Ocean Protection Council, and it's funded on the basis of helping to address pollution issues. And the the pollution issue that we're dealing with is really kind of a larger global pollution issue of excess carbon in the atmosphere, which dissolves into the oceans. And when you dissolve more carbon dioxide in water, it directly makes it more acidic. And that's something you can demonstrate and show to be true, you know, using kitchen chemistry at home. So it, it doesn't require fancy modeling like the connection between CO2 and climate change. This is something that it, it is very clear that you don't have to make any model projections. It is just happening. And, and we see very clear connection between as the atmospheric concentration of CO2 has risen, the pH in the world's oceans has gone down, meaning they're getting more acidic. And the oceans are naturally fairly basic, so a pH of around 8 where a 7 is neutral. And so... To say that there's ocean acidification is happening, the pH is getting more towards neutral, so more towards the acidic side. It's it's not acidic yet. The connection with our project is looking at we're getting some really cutting-edge ocean acidification monitoring in the bay and then improving the monitoring that's happening up at Trinidad. And that's important because one of the things that's most impacted by ocean acidification is oyster hatcheries. The larger oysters are pretty robust. They're not impacted by acidification as much, but the the really young stages, the larvae, when they're larvae, they swim around in the water column and then they they settle and start growing their juvenile and then adult shell. and, And that's when they become seed or spat are terms for them these really small juveniles. But anyway, the larvae and the small juveniles are the ones that are most most sensitive to acidification. And the monitoring, we got this really fancy carbonate chemistry instrument to start monitoring the bay. It's already was installed back in May. And that's at the Hog Island, Hog Island Oyster Company's new hatchery over in Samoa. Right. So this is particularly important because there's a new oyster hatchery here where they're growing... Mm-hmm breeding oysters to grow larvae and then seed production, which has really exploded here on Humboldt Bay in the last, I don't know, five years or so. And, you know, what a timely show right after Oyster Festival. And uh, 
I was happy for Hog Island to notice that they got they won the award for the best raw oyster. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> they were good. Yeah, so they are not growing oysters out to market size or edible size here in Humboldt Bay yet, but they hope to be eventually. So they have this oyster hatchery mm-hmm. where they're basically growing the algae and very controlled conditions, and they have a an intake that brings bay water into the hatchery to grow the oysters. You know, although they filter out sediment and whatnot, it's it's pretty much just bay water. So whatever the pH of that water is, is what they're bringing into their hatchery. So, mm-hmm. Yep. And the, and the instrument we have, it pipes a little, takes a little sip of that water right as it's coming into the hatchery and then runs it through this really state-of-the-art instrument that's nicknamed the Berkelator for its creator, who's an Oregon State University oceanographer, Burke Hales. And it runs, when you see it, it... it you can imagine that it is sort of like a coffee percolator. So it got the name percolator invented by Burke is the percolator. So. <laughs> so speaking of coffee, so you were saying that you can demonstrate with kitchen chemistry that, uh-huh. that pH changes from carbon uh-huh. dioxide. And tell us a little bit about how that works. How can you demonstrate that? It's really simple. So you can make a really sensitive and easy to make pH indicator by taking chopping red cabbage and boiling it. And you just strain out the chopped cabbage after you're you're done boiling it and letting it steep for a little bit, sort of like cabbage. It's cabbage juice. I mean, it's really cabbage <laughs> tea. And that bright red juice will change color when you alter the pH. If you put something basic in it, it turns towards yellow and and green. And if you add an acid like lemon juice or carbonated water, it gets more and more bright pink. And if you so if you take it off the stove. So you can demonstrate that the acids like lemon juice and things make it acidic, but you can take the stuff that's not a cup that hasn't been uh, acidified and take a straw and blow into it and the carbon dioxide from your breath, you can see it will fairly quickly shift towards being more acidic. Wow. It's that instantaneous. Yeah. And you can, there are a lot of YouTube videos, you know, doing this demonstration, but it's pretty fun to do it at home and it makes pretty colors. My, my kids like the demonstration and whenever I make it, they want to play with the cabbage juice. <laughs> and you, you demonstrated that at the March for Science, if I recall, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That was very cool. The only downside is the cabbage juice is kind of smelly. <laughs> right. Okay, so so tell us a little bit about the the pH level in Humboldt Bay relative to say Puget Sound where a lot of the oyster industry has been growing larvae for a long time. The one of the reasons that we were especially interested in this project was that based on monitoring by CENCUS, the Central and Northern California Ocean Observing System, we already can tell that when we get pulses of upwelling, which is what makes our coast so productive, that also brings this high carbon, more acidic water to the coast. And that signal is really strong at Trinidad, which is one of the places, the, the open coast sensor. But there's a, there's a sensor within the bay that you can see that the pH generally stays higher in Humboldt Bay. And you can actually see the pulse on the incoming tide, the pulse of low pH ocean water. And then it, it, on the outgoing tide, the, the pH is shifted higher. It's, it's less acidic. And that, that's, you know, is kind of a good segue into the, your original question was about eelgrass. And the eelgrass is one of the 
one of the main suspects in what's happening in terms of shifting the pH more basic and sort of locally reversing ocean acidification in the bay. And as you say, Humboldt has between a third and a half of the eelgrass in the state and is one of the places where it really hasn't hasn't lost ground in terms of, of footprint. And so that's that's the other one of the other major focuses of this project is sort of trying to understand whether that pH shift, that natural reversing reduction of ocean acidification is driven by eelgrass. So we're, that's what I'm working on this week is getting some instruments out in the bay inside and outside of some eelgrass and in, some, and in a tidal channel and then an adjacent eelgrass bed to see sort of the, the water what it, it's, as it's flowing towards the eelgrass bed, what the pH looks like, and then as it's draining off of the eelgrass bed, how it, how it has shifted. So how do you get that data? When you put these monitors out in the bay, are you getting the data? Streamed live, I wish. No, we have to, the the data lives stored in those loggers until we go out on, on another tide, you know, a month from now and retrieve them and then we can download the data. So, so you leave them out for a month. We, that's our plan for now. We'll see whether they get too fouled or, uh, you know, see how the data looks. It's always, as a researcher, you want to, A, you want to make sure you get your instruments back, but B, you're always anxious about how, how good is the data going to be. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited to get our first, we've done a few smaller test deployments, but this is our first time getting all four pH sensors and we have four current velocity sensors out there. So how do you actually get out there? I mean, as somebody who's walked on mud flats and, and you know, <laughs> scooted on my rear end in mud flats and all the different ways you can get out there, it's not that easy. How do you do it? As you say, it's not that easy. Some places further around, around in the bay, we're getting out in small boats. We take small boats and then sort of just beach them. Since it's a nice soft bottom, you can just kind of run it up on the, the mud flat there and, and anchor it. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful so you don't strand your boat too high in the tide and have the tide go out and then have to wait a long time for the tide to come back in. <laughs> but yeah, it's hard work. One of the techniques we've found that helps minimize disturbance to the mudflat is to use a boogie board and put some of your weight on that and kind of scoot that along. And then you, you don't sink as far into the mud. And then you can, when you have to stop and, and do research and take data, you can also kneel on the boogie board so you don't settle deeper and deeper into the mud. Because as you know, you get sucked down in there. It can be really difficult to break the suction and it kind of tweaks your joints having to twist and, and, and try not to lose your boots. And yeah. It's a challenge. Yeah, I've I've been in a situation where I just kept sinking deeper and deeper, but luckily I had a kayak with me, and so I I finally reached down with my hand into the mud to grab my pant leg and pull my foot out, because wiggling one foot out made the other one go deeper until I was up to my hips in mud, which was pretty scary, actually. Yeah, yeah. That was before cell phones. Nobody knew where I was. It was was pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's also really neat being out of the mudflats. The the eelgrass is a neat neat plant. It doesn't look like so much when you just see sort of the expanses of green driving along the safety corridor. But but when you get out there close to the the bay's edge, it's it's really a neat, a pretty beautiful plant. And the the eelgrass beds are you can appreciate that it's not just an important ecosystem. It's it's got some pretty neat aesthetics to it too. 
So if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Eco News Report. I'm your host, Jen Kalt with Humboldt Baykeeper, and I'm speaking with Joe Tabersi of California Sea Grant Extension about ongoing research on eelgrass, ocean acidification, and aquaculture, specifically oysters. We're talking about oyster culture in Humboldt Bay, which our listeners may know that most of the oysters grown in California are grown here in Humboldt Bay. And just this past weekend, we had our annual Oyster Fest, which I like to think of as the annual Humboldt Bay Clean Water Festival. <laughs> you know, the the Humboldt Bay does have some issues, but it's generally clean enough to eat raw oysters out of, which is pretty phenomenal. But it's also really unique in California in that it is certified for oyster seed production. So there are no oyster diseases that can be shipped to other water bodies. So people are growing all these oyster seed to ship all over the world. Hog Island ships them to Tomales Bay, and then Taylor Mariculture, I believe, ships them to Puget Sound. People are, you know, moving oysters all around the world, and it's, you know, there's definitely a lot of potential for not only oyster diseases, but also other exotic species, invasive species, like the oyster drill that was brought here by the oyster industry when, in, I don't know, in the 50s or something. And then that that can attack the native oysters. But we don't have many native oysters remaining in Humboldt Bay, but there are some called Olympia oysters. Have you ever tried one? I've not. I know that I think I don't remember which companies are. are I know there are some that are starting to cultivate them. I've not tried them, though. They're so little. Yeah. I tried one. I went out on an oyster tour with Sebastian Elright, and Mm -hmm. I tried one raw, which it's been described as kind of like sucking on a penny, which it sort of is. It's like (laughs) this metallic sort of flavor to it, which was really interesting. But they're... The one I ate was about the size of a quarter, actually, the huh. shell. So it was a very tiny little little guy. They live on top of the oyster shells that are cultivated. But huh. the, the cultivated oysters are not native. So do you have a boat? Humboldt State does have some boats, but right now we're actually going out mostly in boats with partners with California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Weah Tribe. And they're two of our important collaborators the the project lead along with me is Jeff Abel with Humboldt State. He's an oceanographer, and then and then uh, phycologist Frank Shaughnessy. The other the other another important partner is Tessa Hill at Bodega Marine Lab and UC Davis. And then and then obviously our industry partner is Hog Island Oyster Company, and they've been really great to work with, and they're really interested in in the science, but also being good stewards. And I really appreciate that about them. And yeah, so that's been a nice aspect that sort of collaborative effort that this this project has created. So Hog Island's operation is out at, in Fairhaven at uh-huh. the old, the former dock for the Simpson pulp mill. So it's just south of the California Redwood Company chip dock. If people know where that is, it's a pretty prominent feature on the landscape. And so that's where the Berkelator is. And it's going to be, the data will be online at some point, so people can just look at it anytime. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's another good thing to mention is CENCUS, the Central and Northern California Ocean Observing System, is a partner. And they are going to take our data and stream it through their website, which is org. And 
Yeah, the Senkus is, is so neat. They already have an oyster condition specific page for Humboldt Bay that shows the water temperature, the fluorometer chlorophyll levels, the pH. And, and oh, it's worth mentioning that the, you know, so we already have pH sensors through Senkus at Trinidad and in Humboldt Bay. So why do we need this percolator if pH is what we're interested in? And the reason is that pH is actually not the end-all and be-all of ocean acidification, especially as it relates to the ability of oysters and other organisms that make their shells with calcium carbonate. The thing you really want to know is the carbonate saturation state, which is how basically it tells you how much energy, how energetically costly it is for an organism to add shell. And when that saturation state gets too low, the water can actually be corrosive, so they have to spend energy just not losing shell they have. But the the percolator can give you, it takes measurements of the total carbonate, so that includes dissolved carbon dioxide, but but all the other types of carbonate in the water, of which there are a few, as well as the amount of just carbon dioxide dissolved in the water. Because carbon dioxide, as it dissolves into the water, some of it turns into bicarbonate, some of it turns into carbonate. And so this instrument, by, by giving us those parameters, gives us really precise measurements of pH, this saturation state, and alkalinity. But the, but the saturation state is the really critical and unique parameter that you can't get from just pH. Because you can have pH conditions where the pH is low, but the saturation state is still okay. And, and vice versa. You can have situations where the pH isn't too low, but, but the saturation state is actually problematic for calcifiers. So how does the eelgrass affect all that? And so the eelgrass as a green plant, it isn't an, an algae like a seaweed. It's, it's actually a green plant. It takes up carbon dioxide just as green plants do. And so that basically directly reverses this ocean acidification problem locally. And the question is... How much do they do that? Are, are they one of the one the one of the main factors driving this shift towards less acidic water in the bay? So it's it's a question of how much how much is eelgrass responsible for that? Are there patterns in space and time that of that activity by eelgrass that oyster growers can use to their benefit? For instance, because they they do this by photosynthesis, it's going to be this effect is going to be most pronounced during the daytime. And it's also going to be more pronounced when the water depth isn't too great, both because the plants get more light, but also they have less water to change the chemistry of. So they, they suck the same amount of carbon out of a smaller volume of water. There's going to be a greater chemical signal there. So what about the green algae that you see in the big mats in the summertime? You know, I get a lot of calls at Humboldt Baykeeper from people who are concerned about the algae. They think it's an algae bloom as in a negative thing that's taking oxygen out of the water. But really, it's it's not that. It's just a, a natural cycle, right? But does that green algae also have a similar effect or not really? Yeah, yeah, it can. I mean, all the, all the different photosynthetic organisms all you know they all derive some of them take up bicarbonate and things more than carbon dioxide so it depends on the and i don't know for ulva but in in general photosynthesizers there's also the the algae the phytoplankton in the water that does some of that too and so 
that's one of the things we're trying to look at is how much of this acidification reversal is happening in the bay because the bay is warmer, which allows that algae to metabolize faster. The flip side of the coin, and that's another thing we're interested in, is that at night, they're not photosynthesizing. They respire because they are they're like any organism. And so they actually do release some carbon dioxide. So what others who are doing similar work are finding, as you'd expect, is that during the daytime, the pH is higher. So it's less, the water is less acidic. But in systems with eelgrass, the pH at night actually may dip a little lower. Hmm. And so the question is, is that sort of increased variability which maybe shifts the average to more slightly more or slightly less acidic, slightly more basic. Is that a benefit when you have to, you know, you have to endure these, these lower pH events. And it's, it's not clear. It seems like that it may still be beneficial that the, the shell they make during the good times may sort of more than offset the, the sort of setbacks during the, the lower pH. Hmm. But that's, you know, that's another aspect of the research that we're, Hope and Conduct will be putting some bags with small oysters along with some of these instruments to look at how their growth is affected being inside or outside of eelgrass beds and then doing similar work up at the, the Humboldt State Marine Lab in the lab. So you're also doing eelgrass monitoring. Uh-huh. And is, is that associated with the, the oyster industry's footprint? It It is not currently. We chose to do the monitoring just partly to to address the issue that there's not really until now been a sort of baywide comprehensive monitoring and we don't can't monitor every every inch of the bay but we have at nine different spots throughout the bay we have a total of 23 transects and most of the spots we have a high high mid and low intertidal transect of 100 meters length and we're looking at shoot density and the, there's a leaf area index, which is basically how much leaf area there is for a given area of bay mud and a bunch, a bunch of other things. But basically we're looking at density and abundance and health overall of eelgrass throughout the bay. And, and the goal is that we want to know the status of the eelgrass because there's a really sad example of in Morro Bay, they lost over 90% of their eelgrass in a span of seven years or something, and there wasn't ongoing monitoring. And, and at the end, people were like, I think, I think there's less eelgrass. And then they monitor, you know, they went out and took more data and realized they'd, they'd already, like, the problem was already kind of past easily being able to do anything about. So it's, it's a sensitive species, and we'd like to detect early if there's if there's something going on and we're we're collecting the kinds of data that hopefully will if if eelgrass starts to run into trouble we'll have at least some initial ideas of where it's happening and and what might be causing it i know there's an eelgrass wasting disease that i don't think is known from humboldt bay yet but one of the things that i've read a bit about is you know there's been an increase in proposals to use aquatic herbicides around humboldt bay to spray the Chilean cordgrass and other species. And eelgrass, of course, is particularly sensitive to herbicides, aquatic herbicides. And so that's one concern, you know, chemicals like that don't just kill what you want it to kill. It kills all the plants. And eelgrass being a flowering plant, of course, it's sensitive. It's got very wide leaves. And so it probably will 
catch a lot of those chemicals as they're going out on a outgoing tide. So that's great that you're doing that more baywide monitoring. Is that in North Bay and South Bay? Or yeah, yeah, it great. is. And it, it, it we also have some transects in the sloughs. So we had one in Freshwater, Mad River. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well. I'll be excited to have you back when you have some results to share with with listeners on all of those studies. You're involved in so many different interesting studies. I'd like to talk about others, but we're almost out of time. So where can people go for more information? The California Sea Grant website is one of the, the best spots. And then also Senku's website will show you the, there is an existing Berkelator, for instance, in Tomales Bay. And so you can see what the data coming out of, of another Berkelator in California looks like. Okay, and we'll post those links to the archive of the show on the KHSU website, and people can go there for more information. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Joe. Thanks for having me, Jen. It's been a lot of fun. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Jennifer Kalt, Humboldt Baykeeper, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Joe Tabersi of California Sea Grant Extension. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU archives at khsu.org, and also... We are podcasting, and you can subscribe at iTunes. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again next week for the Eco News Report. 